Welcome to the Disruptor Series podcast, Adweek's agency podcast of the year. Every episode, we listen to and learn from people who are disrupting business, culture, and life. Here's your host, Doug Melville, Chief Diversity Officer of TBWA. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Disruptor Series podcast. I am so excited today. This is big. We have one of America's finest with us today. We have Brigadier General Leon Johnson, who is the president of the Tuskegee Airmen Incorporated, which is a nonprofit dedicated to sharing the story of the famed World War II Tuskegee Airmen and an organization dedicated to invest in the youth of America as it relates to STEM programming and education. So as many of you that are listening may be familiar with, the Tuskegee Airmen have been in the news quite a bit lately, from the Super Bowl 54 coin toss to Google's February most searched Black History Makers commercial, to the Air Force Academy uniforms that were recently worn in-game, which were a Nike capsule collection for the Red Tails, to the Air Force dedication at the United States Air Force Academy, to the newest bearers at West Point, the Tuskegee Airmen have been showing up more than ever in the last few years in our cultural lexicon. And this month, Lucasfilm, the studio that produced the Red Tails movie, will be releasing the movie for free online and is launching an education page for the Airmen, lucasfilms.com slash Tuskegee Airmen, where students from the grades of 6 through 12 can learn about the Airmen. And this will all culminate on Veterans Day with the launch of the Fly Like Them campaign to help keep their story relevant through inspiration for a future generation. So that's a little background. And ladies and gentlemen, I want a big round of applause for Brigadier General Leon Johnson, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, Doug. You have been way too generous with the introduction there. (laughs) It's so important. It's so important. So, Leon, if I can refer to you as just Leon, maybe you could tell me a little bit about the Tuskegee Airmen Incorporated as an organization and how that differs from the word Tuskegee Airmen that people may hear or know or, or understand from different relationships and conversations. Okay. Let me go back a little bit in history because The first thing is, where did Tuskegee Airmen come from? The Tuskegee Airmen name was not given to the airmen by themselves. It was something that happened because that's where they were trained in Tuskegee, Alabama, during World War II was the principal training base. So they didn't go to Tuskegee to become the Tuskegee Airmen. They went to Tuskegee to become airmen in the United States Army Air Corps at the time. So the origin of the name came much later. I went to high school in Southern California and happened to take a young lady to the junior and senior prom whose father was a Tuskegee Airman, but this was in 1966 and 67. The organization had not been formed yet. So he was just another American veteran of World War II. So the name came much later in the the way this has evolved. The organization came even later than that. Because once the airmen were named that, they became the Tuskegee Airmen. The organization was something that was sort of an afterthought because at first it was just a reunion of World War II veterans. And then later on, it was determined that it was in the best interest to preserve the heritage and legacy as well as pass it on to future generations. 
was to create an organization who was tasked to accomplish that. So that's the big difference is our mission at Tuskegee Airmen Incorporated is to help preserve the heritage and the legacy of the original airmen and pass it on to future generations. In doing that, we work with youth, with programs in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics with obviously emphasis in aviation, aerospace, transportation, but we cover the full gambit with the programs that we try to present as an organization. Wow, that, that's so interesting, the origin of the name. So during World War II, when the airmen flew, do you think they were called the Tuskegee Airmen at that time, or did it become a moniker really after the war had ceased and victory had been claimed? It came much later. I think they were just referred to by the unit that they were assigned to. And the unit, initially, the first unit was the 99th uh, Pursuit Squadron, later to become the 99th Fighter Squadron. But all four of the fighter squadrons were brought together under the 332nd Fighter Group. There was also bombers, because everybody knows, because there have been two movies, that there were Tuskegee Airmen fighter pilots and fighter units. Most people are totally unaware that there were four B-25 medium bomb squadrons that were also part of the Tuskegee Airmen. They were supposed to go to war in the Pacific, but that war ended before they deployed. General, uh, then Colonel Benjamin O. Davis, who was the commander overseas of the fighter group 332nd, had actually been brought back to the United States and was in the process of taking over and commanding the 477th, preparing to take the bomber units into the Pacific for the war when World War II ended. So when you look mm-hmm. at the numbers, there were actually many more Tuskegee Airmen who were part of the bomber unit than of the fighter units, mostly because uh-huh. obviously you have a bomber crew of five to six people. It's a much larger airplane, which means your maintenance footprint is going to be a whole lot larger. And more people means all your support structure has to be much larger. Now, this brings up a very interesting point, but the Tuskegee Airmen was also men and women and actually included everyone in the segregated army at that time. Is that correct? How did that work? Let let me give you our organizational definition. Our organizational definition is anyone who was in a Tuskegee Airmen unit between 1941 in 1948, when President Truman issued Executive Order 9981, is considered to be, in our opinion, a documented original Tuskegee Airmen. That included men, women, white, and black who were assigned to the unit. So by our definition, there are white Tuskegee Airmen. Wow. And that's important to note because when the 332nd and all the fighter units deployed overseas prior to that, There were whites who were part of the infrastructure, but once they deployed overseas is when they became an all-black unit. When we go to the bomber side, the 477th with its four squadrons, because they never deployed overseas, there were whites in the unit all the way through its uh, history, right up up until the end of World War II, where then it became an all-black unit as the war ended, and both the 332nd with the fighter group and the 477 with the bomber group were moved to Lockbourne Air Force Base outside Columbus, Ohio, and becoming the largest base in our Air Force at the time, or Army Air Corps, then the Air Force, because it was a segregated unit. It was then an all-black unit after the war until Executive Order 9981 was issued. Oh, wow. That's so interesting. So, Whites worked with the Tuskegee Airmen, even though the Army Air Corps at the time was segregated in the units at Alabama, or were these in other areas around the United States before they deployed? Both. They were 
not worked with, but usually were either in a leadership position or were instructors. Got it. So another thing that was important about what you just said, I think would be so interesting for listeners is the Army Air Corps was the original kind of birthplace of the Air Force during that time in World War II before the Air Force was a separate division. Would you mind sharing a little bit about that? Yes. World War II, the Army was divided at two pieces. There was the Army, which you think of, of, you know, ground troops and tanks and artillery. But there was a separate part of the Army that was considered the Army Air Corps, which is the predecessor of the modern U.S. Air Force. So there was, during World War II, there was a segregation. If you think about the attack on Pearl Harbor, everybody thinks about the attack on Pearl Harbor, but there were also attacks on the air base, Hickam Air Force Base, Bellows Air Force Base, which were on the island of Oahu in Hawaii. So the Army Air Corps, even when we entered the war, it was in its existence. Oh, wow. And now the divisions of the Army during the beginning of World War II was the, uh, it was the Army and Army Air Corps and the Navy? The well, there was the Army and the Army Air Corps were under the Department of the Army. And then you had the Department of the Navy, which encompassed mm. the Navy and the Marine Corps. Got it. Okay. So tell me a little bit about, uh, that's very helpful. Uh, and it's very important because I think sometimes through history, the younger generations, or as most people learn about it, because the military is not discussed as much today as it was back then, nor is the size as large, sometimes we don't understand the history of you know how these different divisions and segments of the military were created. But tell me a little bit about yourself, um, General. So you retired from the United States Air Force as a brigadier general in 2004. But maybe you could take us back to your career and kind of connect the dots beside the high school dance where you met a young lady whose family was in the Tuskegee Airmen. Can you share a little bit about, did they inspire you or a little bit about your journey to become an Air Force general? Well, the story starts with, I am the product of an Air Force family. My father was in the Air Force. He served for 27 years in the Air Force. So I grew up in the Air Force, around the Air Force moving around the country. Uh, the short version of my youth is that I went to grade school in Hawaii, high school in California, and college in Oregon. So I bounced around the Air Force. I sort of, as I tell people, I went into the family business. And so when I went into the Air Force, now I went to college, and as I picked which college I was going to, and I picked Oregon State University up in Corvallis, Oregon, I went up there to be in their ROTC program, uh, I was a walk-on on their track program because I had done pretty well in high school track in Southern California as a state Southern section uh, hurdle champion. So I was welcomed on the track team, welcomed to be part of the ROTC. And as part of processing in the ROTC, they give you a battery of tests. And I, the outcome of the tests come back and they say, well, you're going to be a pilot. Now, remember, consider the era. This was during the Vietnam era. I went to college in the fall of 1967. And so Vietnam was going hot and heavy and the Air Force needed pilots. I passed all the tests and was designated as a pilot candidate while I was still in college. Uh, the folks in the ROTC program provided the finances for me to get my private pilot's license, to learn to fly, get my private pilot's license. I had been a product of Civil Air Patrol which is a program for youth to get an aviation orientation uh, while I was growing up in high school. 
And in doing that, I'd had a few orientation flights, but now the Air Force in college is going to give me my private pilot's license. Came out of there and went to um, pilot training at Williams Air Force Base in Phoenix, Arizona, uh, and was in the pipeline. I came out a year later. They call it a year of of 54 weeks because that's what it takes to complete the program. And I came out with my Air Force Silver Pilot's Wings. I was good enough in training that they kept me on as an instructor pilot. So that was sort of how I got started. Let me ask you this, Leanne. How hard is it for a civilian to understand the volume of training it is to be a pilot in the United States Air Force? It takes a lot of effort. Um, in the days that I went to pilot training in you know, 1971, we started with a class of 80. We graduated uh, 65 of us. And we were a class that was proud to say we, nobody died going through pilot training, but it was, you were training because you were going to war. You know, you were in pilot training because the next step after pilot training was going to be an assignment to Vietnam. As it turned out, the war had wound down by the time we completed training and only out of our class, I think only three people ended up going to the war in Vietnam. So I was one of those who was picked to stay on and become an instructor pilot. But while I was there, there were a number of other black students as well as some black instructor pilots who were there. One of the black instructor pilots happened to be a gentleman named Captain Danny James, whose father happened to be General Chaffee James. So I got to meet a a black aviation icon who was a obviously a hero from Vietnam, but what most people don't, he was also a Tuskegee Airman. So I was able to meet someone while I was in pilot training who had been part of all of that. And this was just before the organization was formed when I was in, uh, by the time I came out of pilot training. By the time I finished that assignment, you know, five years later, the organization had been formed. And so it was moving on, but, you know, it was not something that was what it is today. It was, again, more about the reunion of these veterans who wanted to get together and um, see their buddies who they participated in the Tuskegee experience with. Wow. So the role of the organization has changed really from a gathering to something more forward thinking. But before we get into that, can you share a little bit about, you know, at the time when you were a black aviator and meeting the son of Chappie James and and the history of your, your father and the family business, how has the conversation around the Tuskegee Airmen kind of lived in folklore for those in the industry versus outsiders who hear the name or see it. But at that time, did they speak of kind of the way that they had disrupted the theory of racial bias in the Air Forces? Or can you maybe share a little bit about how that was communicated in the family business and throughout the ranks? Okay, here's the answer that you don't want to hear. It was not communicated. Because I think about it in that era, who they were, were Americans, who had gone to war for their country and done their duty. It wasn't about anything else. Again, the organization hadn't even been formed when I first got the pilot training. By the time five years later, uh, 76 timeframe, the organization was being formed. But again, it was more about the reunion for them to get together and talk about their shared experiences. It wasn't spread across the Air Force. It wasn't spread anywhere. It was a very small, close-knit group of individuals. And later, as the movies and all that came out, then the notoriety came. But a lot of people would have looked you in the eye and said there were no black aviators during World War II. 
even in the 70s and the 60s? Find it in a history book. Where are you going to find it? It's not there at that time. It just wasn't there. You know, we uh, that's one of those reasons when you grew the organization to make sure that it wasn't lost in history and that it was. Our focus then was getting more pilots through the pipeline. And so I stayed on as an instructor pilot. At one point, we had a black wing commander who got promoted to general, Earl Brown. And our mission, you know, we had at that time seven pilot training bases. And all the bases were, you know, some of them had, we had the largest number of black instructor pilots at Williams Air Force Base, but there were others there who were at the same time trying to help find and promote the ability of blacks to come to pilot training and be successful at pilot training. And that was our mission. That's what we were all about. That's what we were doing at the time. We were, it wasn't the big picture. As I look back on it, we were very instrumental and getting people through the system, not as many as we wanted to, but some of that's driven by how prepared are the people who show up for pilot training. There were some universities coming out of ROTC who did not get their uh, students as prepared as they should be for pilot training and the acculturation. It's drinking through a fire hose. They tell you on the first day, you are going to drink from a fire hose, keep up. The other thing they tell you on the first day, you're sitting in an auditorium and you're all the new students. And they say, look to your left and look to your right. One of those people will not be here at the end of this year. And you're looking at this guy over here and realize the person over there is looking at you. So they challenged you up front that this was not a cakewalk. And uh, it was life and death. And you wanted to make sure you learned your lessons, did your job well, studied well and succeeded in the program. So going through that experience, how do you think that experience compared when the airmen were signing up for civilian training to fly airplanes, how they were treated? Or, I mean, comparing and contrasting your own experience to follow a similar career path at that age in your life, you know, maybe you could walk us through either conceptually or through what you know of how you feel their experience was different or how it was overall when they started their process. Uh, let me start with the fact that when President Roosevelt signed the executive order that created the civilian pilot training program, I think it was at 300 colleges and universities across the country. I think only six of them were black universities and really Tuskegee was the one that really carried mm. the brunt of the load for that program. So there was the thought we need pilots. This was all done in 39 and 40 before the war started even. But the indication was we were going to end up in a war and we were going to need more pilots. So this was to provide some seed corn for going forward. When President Roosevelt then you know, they started the program at Tuskegee. Let me give you the background. To be a white, to go to pilot training, you needed to be a high school graduate. All the Tuskegee Airmen had been to college at least two years, if not college graduates. So they were initially screened at a much higher level than the whites who were going through pilot training. Speaking to one of the original airmen, you know, this is, again, all looking in hindsight, his comment was, you screened us at the highest level, you trained us hard, and why would you not expect us to be successful? Because this was an experiment meant to fail. 
this was an experiment meant if you've seen the movie Red Tails done by Lucasfilm at the very beginning of Red Tails. And if you haven't, it's free right now, as Doug said, on the Disney Channel. Look at that first scene. And what it says is a war college study that said blacks lack the mental capability, intestinal fortitude, the knowledge, the skill set for anything like pilot training. That was a war college study that came out in the 30s that was accepted as fact. So now you're going to send these people to pilot training. It was an experiment meant to fail. It did not fail because the airmen showed up well-prepared with a higher skill level, better from the college education and training that they had when they got there. And there was an artificial ceiling on the number who could graduate. Because remember, this is an all-black unit. How many pilots does it take to man an all-black unit? You have, so there was, quote, unquote, artificial standards set artificially high. So there were people probably who were eliminated who could have made it through the program. Uh, What the Arabin will tell you is when Colonel Noel Parrish took over as commander at Tuskegee Army Airfield, the one thing he did was make the program fair. He didn't give anybody any favors, but he made the program fair, which says before that it probably wasn't. But he is recognized by all the airmen as the one who made sure that the experiment did not fail. And it was originally called the Tuskegee Experiment, right? That was actually the name of it. Let me let me do some clarification here. It was the Tuskegee Airmen Military Pilot Training Experiment to be oh. differentiated from the Tuskegee Syphilis Experiment. There are people, if you use the simply Tuskegee Experiment, you go, uh, which one? Because there are two. And we want to make sure that people understand when we're making that differentiation that this is about the pilots and the mechanics and the whole aviation piece of this. Now, do you think when they announced the Tuskegee Airmen experiment, if it was expected to fail, if it won, if it, if it actually succeeded, do you think there was a real plan in the United States military? or If it really succeeded, was not in the initial thought processes, and I can tell you a reason why is after the 99th, which was the first unit formed up, trained in their P-40s, ready to go to war, sat around for nine months waiting on assignment overseas because they couldn't find an overseas commander who wanted to take this on. So when they finally got orders, their orders were not to the European theater, their orders were to North Africa, and they went to North Africa. Again, if you go back and you look at the movie Red Tails, you'll see there was some controversy that the commanding general over there in North Africa was criticizing the unit because they were not shooting down any German airplanes. And Colonel B.O. Davis's response, which he eventually had to go back to Washington and deliver, was simply this. If you don't assign me missions that allow me to see the enemy airplanes in combat, I can't shoot them down. The missions they were assigned were uh, strafing, reconnaissance, ground attack type missions, and not air-to-air missions. And, you know, they were being graded against a standard that they weren't able to meet because they weren't given the opportunity. Eventually, this was elevated at the Pentagon, and General Davis and the airmen were vindicated as they were not given the opportunity. And in the missions that they were assigned, they were performing as well, if not better, than the other units. 
which led them to be selected to participate in the invasion of Sicily and eventually taken them to the Italian mainland where they set up their base at uh, Ramatelli Airfield. So from the time they trained in Tuskegee, Alabama, to the time they actually saw combat was what period of time? Was it, it was actually years or? Probably about two years from, you know, this training started in 41. They got overseas in 43. You know, just wondering, you being coming from a pilot background, you know, how could you stay motivated that long? You know, just the mental fortitude of being told, wait, coming, it's going to happen around the corner the next mission, maybe it will never happen. I mean, how, how do you think they were able to stay focused so long for such a period of time when ultimately maybe nothing was going to happen at the end? We call that in the military leadership. B.O. Davis was West Point trained. And so he had come, you know, as I said earlier, you know, he went into the family business. His father, General Benjamin O. Davis Sr., was the first black general in our military. So he came from a lineage that understood you have been given a mission and your mission at that time for those airmen was to prepare to go to war. And the more preparation you have, the better you are going to be when you get to the war. One of the things as it turned out when they got to the war, again, segregated military, the white units that they were quote unquote working with were reluctant to spend a whole lot of time spinning them up. And so a lot of ways they were thrown into the fight without as much support as you would expect should have been provided. It wasn't. They were able to make up for it. And some of that might have been attributed to the fact that they were well trained before they got there. And they had a leader who understood the mission comes first, whatever that mission happens to be. Yeah. You know, I, and, uh, when the movie Black Panthers came out, I always thought about the Tuskegee Airmen is the original Black Panthers. You know, you have this whole United States Army Air Corps, all these white pilots, and then you have this small group of black pilots and bombardiers and ground crew that are working within a much larger ecosystem. And uh, one of the things that came up in that Double Victory movie, which was Lucasfilm's accompanying documentary on the airmen and women, was the fact that some of the maps that the United States Air Force had didn't have the Ramatelli base where they were assigned on their maps because they were almost treated as if they were invisible. And in some ways they were, because when you put on, when you're flying a fighter at, you know, 25,000 feet, you got a mask, you got goggles, you got a helmet on. It's really hard to tell who's flying that airplane. The airmen got their reputation because units that they escorted to and from their target, the bomber units, were coming back and not getting beat up by the German fighters the way some of the other units were. There was early controversy that the Tuskegee Airmen never lost a bomber. That is not a fact. That is, in fact, not true. The Tuskegee Airmen fighter escort units did lose bombers to enemy aircraft, but they lost by a huge percentage fewer bombers to enemy aircraft than any other fighter unit that was supporting 15th Air Force in 15th Air Force at the time. So their bomber escort record was stellar, and that's what it was all about. They were about making sure that the bombers made it to their target and made it back, and the enemy fighters did not decimate the ranks. That's why 
B.O. Davis, you know, pilots and crew chiefs put names on their airplanes and some of them it's wives or girlfriends. Uh, General Davis had on his airplane the words by request. And that was because when the white bomber units realized they were coming home, when those guys with red tails on their P-51s were escorting them, we want those guys because we want to come home. When they did have some American bombers because of weather divert and land at Ramatelli, it was an eye-opening experience in both directions. Many of those bomber crews for the first time realized that this is an all-black unit that they never heard of. They just knew the number and what the airplanes looked like. We were a nation at war, and some of them were stuck there because of weather for a week at a time. So they were writing letters to their spouses back home and girlfriends. Well, the letters, because we're at war, were being checked by the censors for the unit. And the unit happened to be the black airmen of the 332nd were doing censorship on the letters. And they talk about the fact that there were these letters that were apologies to their wives and significant others for having to live with these folks and eat with these folks. I'm sorry. Those were in letters going home. So even despite the fact that they were bringing them home, there was still, this is in the mid-40s, there was still that prejudice and bias. Wow. Now, let's talk for a minute about the red tails and the significance of the, the physical tails on the plane being red. You know, there was a, a chapter in uh, B.O. Davis Jr.'s book, American, where he talks about the last P-47 mission on June 30th, 1944, and he discusses that when the P-51s arrived, which were the best combat planes in the war at that time, he had painted the tail of his plane red and commanded the other pilots to do the same. And from July 1st to July 5th, in preparation for a busy month of missions, all the P-51 tails were painted red. And then the first flight of the red tails was uh, July 6th, 1944, for a seven-hour four squadron group mission to Spain. What can you share about the red tails? Because it's become so iconic and it's become a trademark and it's become part of Americana and culture. And, and people know about it from wherever you ask people don't know much about World War II. And they say, hey, I know the red tails or, you know, beside the fact it was the name of the movie. Tell me a little bit more about the significance of the red tails and why you feel that has the test of time. Okay, let's go back to the military and the way the military operates. You know, you're in an airplane, you're going three, four hundred miles an hour, and he's coming or coming at you at the same speed. Um, you've got a closure rate that's a supersonic cruise. You got you know 800 knots of closure in some of those engagements. You need to know if that is a good guy or a bad guy. Is it one of ours or one of theirs? So each unit came up with its own distinctive paint in order to be able to recognize, you know, with a quick look left, right, up, down, who is that? Am I going to be attacked or am I going to be protected by this other guy? So there is a paint scheme that each unit is assigned and given, and it's known by the other units that they're going to be flying with. Because on a typical bomber escort mission, it may be one fighter unit that is going to lead the bomber's to a certain point, hand them off to another fighter unit to carry mm -hmm. the rest of the way and maybe on the exit do the same thing. 
So again, you have to have this recognition and we're talking huge formations. You might have 200 bombers escorted by a hundred fighters. So this is this 200 bombers in one, one mission together. Yes. These were huge bomber missions. I mean, when you, you, what, what you just talked about, what did you say? It was four squadrons escorting that each squadron probably had 15 to 20 airplanes. So if you put four squadrons that each have eight, 20 airplanes, you've got 80 airplanes up there. So it's, there are large formations that this was all about. So it's important to be able to know who's, who's who in that. And that's where the distinctive paint came from. It could have been any color of paint. They happened to pick red. So yes, it is significant because they became the red tails, but it was one of those things that was a identification to make sure that there wasn't any fratricide and everybody knew who who's who in combat. You know, another story in that same chapter of the book was, you know, General Davis didn't, I mean, Colonel at the time didn't even know the significance until there was a party at the end of the war and they laid out, everything was painted red and they said it was because they were the red tails. But I mean, at the time, I don't think people thought too much about it. Back to your story about when people came home from the war, they just did their duty to the country. When do you think the red tails became something people referred to? Or was that something that, I, I don't know, how, how do you think that the red tails survived over stories and, and over legacy versus other areas? Or why do you think that was so uh, catchy or significant? I think it came from the war because, again, remember that by request on General Davis's name, they might have known who the unit was, the 332nd, or they might have said, I want those red tail airplanes escorting me, you know, because that's where it started. And then it Mm. got picked up when you go forward, because remember before they had the P-40s, the P-39s, the P-47s, they did not have red tails. This was a transition that came with the shift to the P-51. Is only airplanes that Tuskegee Airmen had that had the red tails was the P-51, none of the other airplanes that they flew during World Mm. War II. And that was the last set of planes because after that, before the next bombardier group went out, the war had ended. So this was really their iconic plane and the most advanced plane they had during the, during the battle. As a fighter unit. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So one of the areas of double victory, which was the Lucasfilms documentary, they talked about when the men came back at the end of the war. So they had fought their duty. They did their civic duty to the United States of America. They then get home And then the rules weren't really different from when they had left. So they were still segregated. They weren't allowed necessarily going to officers clubs. They weren't necessarily part of the GI Bill, which allowed for housing. Can you talk a little bit about that part of the story and maybe through your conversations with airmen and airwomen and their families, how that was communicated or kind of how that unfolded? Let's go back to the beginning. And because people need to have be normed on what double victory really stands for. Double victory is something that became important because there were two missions. And this is something that was going on back during World War II. There's victories overseas in combat against the enemy. And there is victory at home against prejudice and discrimination. The airmen were able to have their, because of the success of the fighter units, 
was able to have their success overseas in combat. But the second half of that double victory came from the bomber unit. Uh, Remember, the bombers did not make it into the war. They moved around to a number of bases, and the unit was at Freeman Field in Seymour, Indiana, which is where they were in their final preparations before they were going to head off to the war. While they're at Freeman Field, their local commander, obviously a white colonel, had a policy that the facilities on base were segregated. This was counter to existing Army Air Corps regulations. So there were two officers' clubs, one for blacks, one for whites. As one of my predecessors, Bill Terry, who was in the bomber unit, would say, our quote-unquote officers' club had a um, table tennis table and not much more. So the officers in that unit determined that they were going to get together and integrate that segregated white officers' club. So they got together, they put on their dress uniforms. In small groups, they attempted to enter and be served at this officers' club. There were 66 of the individuals involved initially resulting in 101 arrests because they were all arrested, some of them multiple times, for entering this segregated officers' club, which was counter to Army Air Corps regulations. The black press, the media was able to get word of this and wind of this. One of the enlisted troops in the unit was a photographer, and he put a camera in a shoebox, which he carried under his arm and wandered around the base taking pictures of what was going on. And those pictures were secretly pressed to the uh, press and were begin to get the attention of the people in Washington. But before all that happened, the officers were brought together in order to sign a letter accepting the segregated facilities and acknowledging all of this. Those who refused were brought up on court-martial charges. Bill Terry and two other individuals were brought up on charges of assault because in going into the officer's club, they were attempted to be stopped by the provost marshal or the chief of police, and they brushed up against him, and that was considered assault. All three were brought up on court-martial charges. Two of them were dismissed outright. Bill Terry was found guilty, forced to forfeiture of pay, and it was on his record. In 1986, at our convention in Atlanta, the chief of staff of the Air Force came to our convention and announced that all the court-martial charges were being expunged from everyone's record. Bill Terry's court-martial was overturned, and he was exonerated. They were all exonerated. The double victory video, the 90-minute version of this double victory video, shows him and his wife when he hears this news. And it's important because this is our Air Force coming forward and acknowledging things that were done wrong during the war, which impeded but resulted in the double victory. Because think about this. This was before we had a civil rights movement the way we have it today. These men put their lives on the line in a nation at war and were brought up because it's affectionately, not affectionately, but it is known as the Freeman Field Mutiny. And if you use the term mutiny in the military, that's a court-martial offense with a death penalty associated with it. So this was a brave moment by these men that helped achieve the second half of that double victory, because that act of civil disobedience directly led to President Truman signing Executive Order 9981, which desegregated our military. So when I go out and speak, I say these words because they're important. What the Tuskegee Airmen did is not black history. It's not military history. It's American history. The actions of the Tuskegee Airmen impacted 
all Americans. And that's important. That's the importance of double victory and why that double victory was so important. So back to what you were talking about. When they came home and they got off the troop carrying ship, there was one line for the white troops and the other for the black troops who were coming back from the war. One led to a parade, one did not. I'll let you figure out how that worked out. How unequal were the terms at the time? One of the officers was on a train with his wife in full uniform. And at that time, the full uniform included a loaded 45 weapon. He is in the dining car on this train and is told by the porter that he cannot be served in that dining car. This is after the war. So, yes, they were overseas. They were victorious American heroes who have conquered the enemy. When they returned home, they were still second-class citizens. I don't understand how. I mean, it goes back to your point earlier about leadership, but this is a hard mental road to get through. You put your life on the line. You could have died any day, any week, any exercise, and then victory is spoiled by the return home. Let me, let me take that to a different level. Let's go back to General Davis, B.O. Davis, when he was a cadet at West Point. Most people might have, may or may not have heard that he was given what they call the silent treatment. He was not spoken to in anything but an official capacity for the entire time he was there. He had no roommate. He had nobody to study with. He had to eat alone every day. But the worst day was Sunday because... He had to then go to every table with his tray and ask to sit with someone to be refused to then go sit alone and eat his cold breakfast. So think about the fact that going forward in his military career, those individuals who were doing that later had to work for him. That's unbelievable. That is unbelievable. You know, that leads me to, um, you know, something I want to talk about, which is the modern acknowledgement of the Tuskegee Airmen. So in 2017, West Point dedicated their newest, largest, and as they had stated, last barracks after General B.O. Davis Jr. 2019, around one year ago, you and I were both present at the United States Air Force Academy as they dedicated their airfield to General B.O. Davis and the Tuskegee Airmen. What do you think is relevant about this story now where monuments, the institutions that have historically shunned them are now coming around to acknowledge them or pay tribute or homage or recognize the story? Uh, It's a great story. I mean, it is, you know, everybody needs to be aware. And this is putting it not just in the history books, but putting it on buildings and facilities that are going to last far past their time with us here on earth. And that's important because that's part of preserving the heritage and the history and the legacy of what they did to recognize that these were pioneers. These were people who were trailblazers who accomplished something. These were people who should be looked up to as role models. And the thing about the airmen is there were the airmen who made contributions during the war. There were some who made contributions after the war. I mean, Coleman Young, former mayor of Detroit, was a Tuskegee Airman. One of the gentlemen I love to talk to about is Mal Whitfield, Frederica Whitfield from CNN's father. Mal Whitfield was in the bomber unit. He was a gunner in the bomber unit. So during World War II, obviously, he didn't go overseas, didn't see any combat. Before that, in college, and while he was still in the Air Force, Mal Whitfield 
was a world-class runner, middle distance runner. He was the epitome of American middle distance runners. So war ends in 1948. The Olympics are held in London. Mal Whitfield goes to the Olympics in London while still in the Air Force. So he's the first person to compete as part of the Air Force in an Olympic Games. So in 1948, he wins two golds and a silver medal in the Olympics. That's an Olympic record in the 800 meters. 1952, between 48 and 52, he's still in the Air Force. So he ends up going to Korea and flying 27 combat missions as a bomber gunner during the Korean War. 1952, he goes back to the Olympics in Helsinki and again, wins the Olympic gold medal in the 800 meters. He does not make the 1956 Olympic team. He's disappointed. He goes to work for the State Department and becomes a sports ambassador. They send him to be a sports ambassador overseas. And his first assignment, he goes to Kenya. At his funeral a number of years ago, uh, Frederica Whitfield introduces me to a gentleman named Kipchoge Kino, who was a phenomenal Kenyan middle distance runner in the 60s. He is now the sports ambassador for his nation. And he says at the funeral, I am here representing my nation because today the world fears Kenyan distance runners. But before Mal Whitfield showed up in my country, that program did not exist. Mal Whitfield created what is the monster in the track world of Kenyan middle distance runners. Those are the kind of contributions that the airmen made post-war. So it's more about who they were during the war because they set a standard, but they continued to contribute after the war. That is remarkable. I, you know, that's my first time hearing that story. And that is really some story because the generations of the families, you know, Tom Joyner, the radio broadcast legend, his father was a Tuskegee Airman, Robin Roberts from ABC and the years at ESPN, as you said, uh, Frederica Winfield, I recently was introduced to Chio Hodari Coker. He's a big film producer. And now that this new generation is taking over, how does this, number one, make you feel? And how do you feel this keeps the story alive for the younger generation? I think it's important because they are the ones who are going to carry the story forward to future generations. You know, these are the people who contributed, you know, their grandparents parents in some cases. So we need to hear from them. They need to help us tell the story. And that's the important critical piece is, you know, we're a fairly small organization, Tuskegee Airmen Incorporated. We have 57 chapters in 34 states, District of Columbia and the Virgin Islands. We number somewhere around 2000 members. It ebbs and flows, but we're not that big. And so we need help. We need all these individuals who have a relationship to our documented original Tuskegee Airmen to participate and support us in our efforts and help us tell the story. And then how can people support the organization that are listening to this? What is their best way? Is it through maybe share a little bit about how you take donations or how you create revenue? I know one of the cool things that you did this year was you worked with Nike to actually create a customized uniform for the United States Air Force Academy with the Red Tails moniker on it, because I'm wearing some right now. But maybe you could share a little bit about that story and uh, how that came about, and then also share how people can help support the Tuskegee Airmen, because the Nike collaboration actually was a fundraiser. Yes. The folks at the Air Force Academy, the uh, athletic department, you know, have 
done this a number of times where they've picked a role model to use on a uniform, and it's a single-use uniform. They only are going to wear that uniform for the one game. So they came to us because we, as an organization, Tuskegee Airmen Incorporated, have the trademark for red tails on clothing items. So they came to us through their vendor, Nike, and said the Academy would love to do this. And, you know, we set up a, a marketing agreement that allowed them to use Tuskegee Airmen red tails on their uniforms and create a merchandise side to sell replicas like Doug is wearing the hat and jerseys and t-shirts and sell those. And obviously Tuskegee Urban Incorporated would get some revenue from that. But uh, the biggest way people can support us is, you know, we're participating in Giving Tuesday, but on our website, www.tuskegeeairman.org, that's our website. And if you go to the top right button on the website there, it's a place to support us. There's a way to use PayPal, credit card, or the old-fashioned write-a-check. You can designate where your money, which part of what we do you want your money to support. We you want to recognize the people. We have our virtual wall of honor that you can see there, and it lists all our donors and the various levels that they have achieved in our recognition program. And we decided to make it resemble a military organization. So, you know, it starts off like a crew chief and works its way all the way up to four-star general. So various levels in the support program and, uh, and be able to support us and what we do and what we're trying to do. That is the quickest and easiest way to be able to support the organization. No, that's really great and inspirational. And then the money goes to different scholarships and education programs to help support the STEM mission and keep the legacy alive. Well, let me do a little differentiation there. Within our organization, Tuskegee Airmen Incorporated, we do educational assistance through uh, the activities of our chapters. There is a separate, a related to us organization called the Tuskegee Airmen Scholarship Foundation. The Scholarship Foundation has its own, it's its own 501c3, but our chapters nominate students to the Scholarship Foundation to receive scholarships from the Scholarship Foundation. But we mm -hmm. operate as two separate organizations. So to deconflict, we at Tuskegee Airmen Incorporated through our chapters do educational assistance, and we have the Scholarship Foundation, which does the scholarships. And our chapters send their nominees to the foundation, and they do a very good job of supporting the youth and helping us doing that and closing the loop there with the youth. That's so exciting, so important. So as we wrap up here today, General, um, Veterans Day 2020, the whole movement around Black Lives Matter this year, social justice, there's been a lot going on, the presidential election, all the conversation and noise around that. So you're launching or you and Lucasfilms are kind of putting together a big campaign called Fly Like Them, which is a hashtag to inspire youth to go on to the Lucasfilm website, learn about the Tuskegee Airmen and Airwomen, rewatch Red Tails, and really inspire and translate what the organization has built into the future generation. So what would be your one takeaway for the younger person or the person that's not familiar with World War II that hears this, that really is looking for some inspiration to fly like them and exceed and excel as the airmen did years ago. Lucasfilm has been our partner for a long time. When the Red Tails movie was being made, 
we got together. Uh, we actually created an educational piece to go with the documentary Double Victory back then in 2011. So this is a continuation of that partnership mm-hmm. with our friends at Lucasfilm. And in our conversation, they were basically saying, well, we'd like to, with Veterans Day coming up, let's see what we can put together. And they came up with the, you know, the hashtag fly like them, which says fly or be fly, you know, take it whichever way you want, but fly like them is the, what they wanted the message to be for the Tuskegee Airmen, uh, for the youth to be able to emulate. The other thing they did is they have three different versions of this documentary double victory. There's a 15 minute version, which is the teaser. It's the one that I asked Lucasfilm to create so that when there are no more airmen with us, we'd be able to take something and you could hear in 15 minutes a little teaser of what the airmen were all about. There's a 60-minute version, and then there's the full-up 90-minute version of Double Victory. And I really think the 90-minute version is critically important because we think about you know the military, the men and women in uniform, but think about this. If they weren't ready for the men during the war, they were not ready for their wives. I mean, most of the women, the guys, they're talking about graduating from pilot training in the morning, getting married in the afternoon, and departing that evening on a mission somewhere. When they went overseas, the women either went to stay with his parents or her parents, because there were no facilities. There was no accommodation. So there's more to the story than just, you know, the people in uniform. And that's an important thing you hear and see from the documentaries that Lucasfilm did. I've always asked, is Red Tails factual? And my answer is everything that is in the movie Red Tails is based on fact, but it is not factual. The factual story of the Tuskegee Airmen can be found in the Double Victory documentaries. And that's what George Lucas's mission was. He said, I want to get America's attention about the Tuskegee Airmen. That's my movie. They'll go see a George Lucas movie and see that. But he wanted to give America the documentary for free. If perchance you bought a DVD version of Red Tails on that disc is a 15 minute version of Double Victory. If you have the Blu-ray version of Red Tails, the 90 minute documentary is on that second disc. So George Lucas, if you bought the movie, he was going to give you the documentary for free. And now Lucasfilm is posting it on their website. You can also find it. We're going to bring out a brand new thanks to TBWA. Right. We're going to have a brand new Tuskegee Airmen website that should come out on the 11th of November. So we're going to make sure that that is also available on our website. So the important thing is there is more to the story. We in 45 minutes to an hour, we can't give you everything. The number of people, the way they impacted American history, both in uniform and after they were no longer in uniform and the things that they have done and continue to do for our country. I mean, I've got a 100-year-old airman. Charles McGee is at the Super Bowl bringing the coin out, and he's 100 years old. They just amaze me with their ability to do things and their continued ability to support and contribute. That is so powerful. 100 years old. I know when I saw him at the Super Bowl, all I could think about was his point of view saying, here I am, 65, 70 years after the war, still out here wearing the red jacket, flipping the coin at the biggest television event in American history has to be overwhelming. 
And Charles McGee, uh, you know, his honorary promotion to Brigadier General, well-deserved and and long overdue. Charles McGee is one of the few individuals in American military history to have flown fighters in three wars. He flew fighters in World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. So he goes from flying a 100-mile-an-hour trainer in 1941-42 to flying a Mach 2 jet, the RF-4 Phantom, during the Vietnam War. And he's still with us to tell the story. So that's the importance of individuals who are what we call the documented original Tuskegee Airmen. And the reason we use the term documented original Tuskegee Airmen is, unfortunately, there's things that call stolen valor. And so we make sure that we have validated the individuals who we give the title to, to make sure that they are the ones and they get the recognition they deserve. And We can't give them enough recognition and love. They are our heroes, men and women who gave their all, and some of them who did not come back from the war in order to help us preserve the way of life we call American way of life. And with that, General Johnson, thank you so much. I appreciate you, your time, your honesty, your thoughtfulness, the detailed level of the description so we all have a vivid understanding Thank you for joining the Disruptor Series today, and uh, I appreciate you, and I'm going to encourage everybody to please log on to TuskegeeAirmen.org to follow and donate and track all of these great stories of the documented original Tuskegee Airmen, and also head to LucasFilm.com slash Tuskegee Airmen to watch one of the three different timed versions of Double Victory and make sure to catch Red Tails all this month for free on Lucasfilm's website and on their YouTube channel and all streaming services. So thank you so much, Leon, I appreciate it. Thank you, Doug, appreciate your time and let me tell the story. Thank you for listening to the Disruptor Series podcast, Adweek's agency podcast of the year. Craving more disruption? Visit us at tbwashydayny.com.